I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi, listeners. Elise here to remind you of all the ways you can support the podcast and the work that Courtney and I do. First up, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon patrons receive exclusive bonus content. Every month, we do a roundup of Shakespeare-related content we have found online. We also share Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes of the podcast. These look like extended versions of episodes you've heard here, collaborations with other Shakespeare podcasters, and Courtney and I doing reviews of Shakespeare-adjacent media, like TV shows, movies, and books that are inspired by or loosely based on Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays. Patreon patrons also receive snail mail from the podcast, and some levels even vote on future episodes of our podcast. If you are interested in checking out our Patreon or just the Shakespeare-related names we've given the tiers of support, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link is also in our episode description. After you've done that, please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. Thank you so much for all of the support you give the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Hi, Elise. Oh, dang it. We did it again. (laughs) We're getting more and more in sync with these Uh as time goes on. Looking at each other like, who's going to go first? Who's going to go first? I guess, oh, (laughs) we're both going first. (laughs) Well, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm also doing really well. Yeah. Yeah. Life has settled a little bit at the time we're recording this. So we had a very busy August. Mm -hmm. That's in the rear view for both of us, hopefully. Yes. And we can enjoy things like this episode that we are sharing with all of you. We have a very exciting episode today. We are in conversation with Dr. Mia Escott. And we are talking about Shakespeare, race, Mia's love for Aaron. And Yeah, it's an exciting episode, and it's such an enlightening episode, and I feel really grateful to have had this conversation with Mia. Mia is absolutely brilliant, and I'm so excited to share this conversation with everybody because you're just going to learn so much. She's so insightful, and the way that she teaches Shakespeare and her way of approaching Shakespeare is so re-energizing and refreshing, and I'm just so excited for everybody to meet. Dr. Mia Escott. Mia Escott is an assistant professor of English, rhetoric, and writing at Barry College. She joined the faculty in 2022 
after receiving her doctoral degree in English from Louisiana State University. An Alabama native, she has graduated from Auburn University and the University of Montevallo. Her research and teaching interests include early modern British literature, Renaissance drama, Shakespeare, critical race theory, and women's and gender studies. Dr. Escott is the 2022 recipient of LSU's HSS Diversity Committee Excellence in Teaching Graduate Student Award, which highlights her commitment to making academia an inclusive and equitable learning space. Most recently, she has been a guest speaker at various Barry College events, sharing her love for English and Shakespeare. If you are not a Barry student, then luckily, you can find Dr. Escott on TikTok at Dr. Shakespeare. That's at Dr. Shakespeare, where she is making the bard more accessible and comprehensible in a humorous way. And now, here's our conversation with Dr. Mia Escott. Hello. Hi. Mia, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to talk to you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you all for the invite. So we ask all of our guests this, but what was your first experience with Shakespeare? (laughs) I actually can't recall my first experience with Shakespeare, but I know it was experimental because we weren't required to read Shakespeare in high school. And so my mom had this book of old Shakespearean plays just lying around the house and I would gloss over it because I felt as though I needed to know who Shakespeare was. Everyone had constructed him as this literary god and I was like okay well let me see what he is writing about but the moment I knew that I wanted to study one of his works and his plays it occurred to me as I was watching the production of Macbeth so I remember the first time I saw Macbeth at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival my dad and my mom took me and Lady Macbeth was just thriving off the misery of her husband and she was slowly slipping into madness and all I could think about was how can someone be so be reading so disgustingly beautiful? And it was amazing, like just going to see Lady Middell and emerging myself in the works of Shakespeare without really knowing what was going on. But that put me on to want to explore him a little bit more. That's incredible. Macbeth holds a near and dear place in my heart. And so knowing that like that was part of your journey is so cool. And I also love the like that it was a very self-directed sounds like path to Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. There was kind of this like one thing that came later, but there was always this like this guy. Oh yeah. (laughs) I'm intrigued. Tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely think it was kismet. Like that was fate. I was destined to be a Shakespearean. (laughs) (laughs) And now let's dive in because we're just, we're so excited to talk to you about your work about how we look at Shakespeare through a lens of race. Mm -hmm. So much of your work is centered on critical race theory. CRT has been turned into a buzzword, and we want to make sure our listeners understand what critical race theory or CRT actually is, as well as how you use this theory to look at Shakespearean text. Can you tell us the basics of critical race theory and how you apply it? Okay, yeah, sure. I'm going to take the long way around and slowly emerge myself into CRT so everyone understands how I'm approaching it. So my foundation is rooted in early modern race studies, and I'm using early modern race studies to look at how a person discusses race prior to the idea of race appearing. So as Peter Erickson and Kim Hall notes, the conceptual formulation of early modern race studies 
necessitates that we go all the way back to consider the role of race in the medieval and Renaissance eras. So early modern race studies in my research include CRT, critical race theory, which is an academic and legal framework, which helps us think about how race and racism is in every institution that we encounter. And even though it's specific to the U.S., it is also a framework that can be used across geographical and historical differences. For example, even ritually, within Titus Andronicus, the death of all the races are treated as differently. You know, uh, <laughs> Titus is given an honorable burial. Tamora's corpse is thrown into the wild to be consumed by prey. And Aaron experiences what I call an inverse lynching, where he is buried breast deep with his head exposed, making him a spectacle until his last breath. So the play really closes as it opens with minorities experiencing different treatment than the Roman characters, even as it relates to punishment. I love that you brought up the idea of race before race, because some people will say that Shakespeare wrote without race, and I'm using big air quotes, because (laughs) we often talk about Although the concepts weren't the same as what we exist in now, especially in America, that doesn't mean that there weren't similarities or that Shakespeare exists in some sort of world where there was no such thing as difference. There was no such thing as an other. And so I really appreciate that you brought up um, that as well as looking at we can see minority characters throughout Shakespeare. In your dissertation... Reassessing race, exploring the construction of identity and social hierarchies on the early modern stage, you argue that the social construction of race is present in early modern plays and specifically in the works of Shakespeare. What was that and how is race theorized and imagined in Shakespeare's time compared to today? So I would say during the 15th and 16th centuries, and I could also go, you know, back to the 14th century and up to the 17th century, but people were really relying on religion as a mark of difference. So when you think about Othello and Aaron being referred to as a Moor, it's usually bringing attention to their Muslim background and their relationship with the devil or witchcraft. So black bodies were so connected to Africa or this concept of animalistic or barbaric that even though Othello converts to Christianity, the characters do not divorce him from this Muslim identity. The paradox is also seen with the character of Aaron when he says that Aaron will have his soul black like his face. Shakespeare sets up this parallel between religion and race in this line where blackness becomes a negative marker physically and metaphysically. I know that you also talk about how Shakespeare both mirrors and advances the early modern discourses of racism and anti-blackness on and off the stage. He uses a lot of visual imagery of white versus black in terms of like good versus bad, which is a racist construct. So I'd love to hear like other examples of how he shows us that concept of other in his plays as well. I think he really does it. And I may be moving too far within one of your questions, but I think it aligns perfectly where he does this on stage. It's really in the character's language. The character is othering someone. The character is marginalizing another individual. And we have Shakespeare, you know, almost as the puppeteer. These are his words. This is his writing. And so, for example, Othello is called more eight times in at one scene one, even though Iago and the other characters are discussing him for an entire scene. They know his name, but they never use it once. And Othello isn't even called his name until at one scene three. Mm-hmm. 
And so this is this is how it's othering him. It's almost in a sense declining to name Othello presents him as valueless. It takes away who he is as a person and solely focuses on his race. Is in the unnaming of Othello, we are also othering him to only belong to this particular background, to this particular identity. While Aaron Shakespeare's stage directions and parentheticals. Every time you look at these, it, it's only referring to Aaron as Aaron the Moore. And so he is not able to separate himself from this identity of being the Moore. Aaron is constantly connected to this idea, but we don't have any other supplemental indicator for the other characters. The text isn't saying interstage left, Tamara the Gaul, or Titus the Roman. We're missing that. And I think that that also plays into this othering where we are meant to look at Othello or Aaron as different or isolated individuals within these texts. They are meant to stand out in the text, the language of the words that the characters are using definitely does this. You're 100% right. We get Tamara, Queen of the Goths, on her first entrance to establish Mm -hmm. her. And then after that, it's just Tamara. We see elsewhere in works where characters who are presumed white as default, when they re-enter in a new, like in a new way or in a costume, like thinking Prince Hal when he enters as King Henry V for the first time in Henry IV Part Two, it's enter Prince Hal as king. It's to like to denote difference and that Aaron gets it every single time is every time Shakespeare and his peers calling out every time that this person is different from everybody else and not letting you forget that as a theater maker or a reader. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. The emphasis on more brings attention to Blackness on stage and off stage as it reflects this 16th century English social hierarchy. You know, xenophobia is real and mm-hmm. the England self is situating those who are other apart from them and using physical appearance to assist in sectionalization of identity. Aaron, you are placed over here. This is where you will remain. And we're going to consistently bring that up to not let you forget, but not let the audience forget as well. I also love that you brought up how often Othello is referred to as a qualifier versus his name. I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. And that really sets up the audience, whatever their preconceived prejudices are, whatever's going on in early modern England, he is not himself first. And I didn't realize that. So thank you for bringing that up because that's something to really think about, you know? Oh, yeah. I'm teaching it right now in my class. It's a lower level 200 Shakespeare heroes and villains class. And so we're looking at Othello. And a lot of my students didn't understand or didn't know what the word more meant. And so as we're reading through, we start to count them. And I'm asking them, how many times do we hear this word? And then we learn that his name is Othello when the Duke says his name. And the students, we go back and I tell them, well, let me tell you the definition of a Moor. Moor is, you know, someone of darkest skin, someone of Muslim descent, someone usually coming from Africa. And so they were like, their faces drop. I mean, jaws drop. It was, it was like a revelation almost like, oh, well, that's pretty prejudiced. That's some type of racist language going on. Like, why would you consistently refer to him as a Moor when he has a name and he's just not a regular Moor. He's a general. He has saved your butt right. countless yeah. times. Like, he's your boss. Right. Yeah, <laughs> actually. Right. Like he's Iago's boss and Iago is constantly not referring to him by his name or his title. Mm-hmm. He's referring to him by his race. Yeah. 
it really exposes the hatred that Iago has for not just Othello, but for the more. I'm interested to see how that plays out. We're still reading it. They're on Act 3 right now, so I have to update you all. (laughs) Please do. Please let us know what they think when they get to Desdemona asking Iago for help. Or... (laughs) Amelia's realization of what's happened. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a re- this is an interesting segue. We've talked a lot about specifically the language that other characters use towards black characters in Shakespeare. And while these plays do include white supremacist and racist language, especially said by characters towards minority characters, is it possible specifically for black characters in Shakespeare to be more than racist stereotypes. Most definitely. Aaron and Othello are more than their stereotypes. They prove themselves to be leaders. They have influence over people. And even though they are at the bottom of this social hierarchy, they do possess power. I think people quite often overlook that, especially as readers, when we are almost programmed to see them as villains and to see them as the bad guy. We try to restrict them or constrain them in a way that they can't move out of this idea that we have already constructed for them. I mean, Aaron orchestrates the downfall of numerous characters in Titus. He convinces Chiron and Demetrius to defile Lavinia. He is the one that has Titus cut off his hand. And so Aaron is so authoritative and self-assured as he never repents for any of his sins. Mm -hmm. And I just think that he, he lives in his truth. He's wicked and he's no, and he knows it. For example, But he states, but I have done a thousand dreadful things as willingly as one would kill a fly. And nothing grieves me heartily indeed, but that I cannot do 10,000 more. I mean, this is a man that takes ownership. He doesn't give credit to to witchcraft or the devil for his evil deeds. And that's pretty empowering. He's like, I did these wicked things. I'm standing by them. Aaron and Othello are also husbands and fathers, respectively. Othello marries Desdemona. He's not this brute. He's not this savage. He's not this animal. He is capable of loving someone. And we also see this when Aaron procreates with Tamara and they have this son. And we briefly catch him adoring for and caring mm-hmm. for his son that looks just like him. And I think it's important to reassess how we view marginalized characters, specifically Black characters and these Black men such as Othello and Aaron. Because we have to acknowledge that, yes, Aaron is a horrible person, but it's because he commits horrible acts, not because he's a moor. Right. Titus kills his own son. He murders all these people. He murders more people in the play than Aaron. So why are we ignoring the fact that he too is a horrendous person? Mm-hmm. Aaron reminds me in ways a lot like Hotspur, where mm-hmm. here's this person who is capable of doing all sorts of things, but we get these moments of domesticity mm-hmm. and they're not just like you said he's not just evil he's not just doing witchcraft and he's he wants to do evil things because he's ambitious and because he's schemy and because that's what he wants to do in the way that Hotspur just wants to fight but we get these other sides to them because they're still complex characters um with agency um which we've talked about with other non-presumed white cis male characters in the canon like <laughs> Um, sometimes our modern ideas of them are through a modern lens but if we really look at what these characters do and what Shakespeare has them say and them do they have agency they have complex inner lives just like 
the characters that we don't presume are villains or presume are weak and ineffective because of their gender or their race or their religion. Shakespeare actually gives them a little bit more than the stereotype. Uh I, I definitely agree. Aaron is strategic. He is calculated. He is witty. He is knowledgeable. He knows exactly what it is that he wants to do. And these delfs make him laugh. He finds humor in this. All, mm-hmm. Everything that he does is comical. And so he's doing it for his own pleasure, not because he's filling this void to represent this Moorish identity, but because Aaron is just being Aaron. He wants to do bad things. He wants to see people in their misery. He's thriving off of that. <laughs> And then he he loves his baby boy. Yeah. And is going to like try to find a way for the baby to live. And then is like, I I can't even do that. I love this baby so much. And mm-hmm. that's how he gets caught, is that he just is such a doting father mm-hmm. that he talks too loud about his plan. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> it's a gut punch of Yeah. Yeah. Of empathy there for him. Yeah. It makes you see Aaron in a different light, in a positive light. And the test, I believe when I when I read the play sometimes, he tries so hard to hide that. But you have to just sit with it and you have to open up your mind to take it in. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to see Aaron as a good person, you can definitely find some good qualities in him, especially when he has those moments with his son. Yeah. We're kind of dancing around this question. How do Aaron, Othello, and Caliban require theater makers, academics, readers, and audience members to consider how race is constructed in and through performance? Everyone on stage is participating in performing race. When a BIPOC character is presented, people often forget that white people are raced as well. Mm -hmm. So characters like Aaron, Othello, and Caliban not only make non-white bodies visible, but they also make white bodies distinguishable. Aaron makes Titus distinguishable as a Roman because he comes in as the Moor. And so there's a division there and the text is going to allow us to see that division by consistently referring to Aaron as the Moor. So we automatically assume and know that Titus is the Roman. Shakespeare also labels Caliban as a savage and deformed native of the island in the persons of the play, right in the descriptions. Shakespeare isn't hiding it at all. Right in the description, I want you to know that Caliban is different. He's other. He's race. He is savage. He's deformed. He is not like Prospero at all. And then you have Prospero who is attempting to civilize Caliban. You have Miranda attempting to teach the language. So before the play even begins, it is in, in the very description that there's a racial hierarchy that already exists and it does not favor non-white characters. I also recommend Dr. Arthur Little Jr.'s book, White People in Shakespeare. I think it does a wonderful job as it takes a look into how Shakespeare plays, and I'm taking his words loosely, Shakespeare plays actively engaged in white people making. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a really great read. It's some amazing scholars in that book. They have some wonderful, wonderful essays. Thank you for um, bringing up a recommendation. We will add that into our like episode note descriptions in case anyone is interested in taking a look at that. And I love that you brought up the race making in Shakespeare, because mm-hmm. one thing that's also happening at this time, we've kind of briefly talked about it here. We've talked about 
um, how the early modern period is the early modern period where the (laughs) (laughs) the social constructs that affect us today are often just in their very infancy and they're starting to be made we've talked about this when it comes to colonialism with Shakespeare Mm -hmm. writing like during active colonial times or seeing the ramifications of colonialism no but his world the ideas that were circulating are the ideas that British exceptionalism and British imperialism are based on Mm -hmm. that then inform the structures that we exist under today Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I try to talk about that in my dissertation as well as I bring that into a lot of my classes that I teach is when I'm teaching Othello or Tyson Dronicus, that we are watching race and racism in this infancy. We are seeing it development, we're seeing it form. And how can we recognize it or how how are we able to say this is what it is and this is what it's doing? And I definitely think it it opens up a lot of conversation <laughs> in class where <laughs> The students are confused and they're taken aback a little. Well, I think it also shows them that they are more connected, not only to themselves, but also to their, their environment. They're more aware than they realize. Yeah, we have a saying when we're exasperated a little bit by the early modern period um, that just, well, not much has changed, unfortunately, <laughs> like that mm-hmm. these things that are made more concrete for the first time in culture unfortunately like 400 years ago isn't that far away and that's mm-hmm. almost why it's relevant to keep revisiting and keep talking about it and looking at where did this come from and what were people talking about and then one thing that I want to touch on theater has undergone a sort of reckoning a lot of theater makers are still unlearning white as the default which I brought up earlier of like When a character is not explicitly designated as a race in a playwright's play, Mm -hmm, theater mm -hmm. makers in this country will often default to white. And that is also a practice of constructing race by not putting a cast together that looks like the world that we live in Mm -hmm. when we can actively make white not the default is what I'm trying to say. And just cast the best actor. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They're all going through auditions. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're thinking about just considering how race is performed on theater, it's a tricky conversation. And I think it's important to be mindful of the what the actor or actress's own identity is bringing into this role, as well as like the audience perception of race, gender, class, as it is continuously shifting mm-hmm. what was acceptable in the 1960s, like putting on blackface, it's not going to work now. Right. Like you were saying, we should consider BIPOC actors and actresses to contribute to roles that were not necessarily meant for them or written for them. I think about Denzel Washington as Macbeth. And not only is he a great Macbeth, but he's just, he's a great actor, you know. Denzel Washington brings it. I think he definitely does it, does it justice. But then you also have to think about do you want to see Leonardo DiCaprio, even though he's one of the best actors, as Othello or as Aaron? And would you be comfortable seeing that? It just comes full circle because the new Little Mermaid, you know, with Hallie, Hallie, yeah, Bailey, Hallie, yeah, Hallie Bailey. People were up in arms. They were upset. People were really upset about you know her being cast as the Little Mermaid. They were also even with Tinkerbell, and people were mad about that and these are 
cartoons animated characters <laughs> like it's a mermaid and a fairy there's yes. no cultural ties here we're not telling a culturally based story that requires knowledge of a culture some of what you were saying reminded me of conversations we had with dr sawyer kemp who does the intersection of like trans early modern studies and mm -hmm. pushing that field forward from looking at where is a play explicitly about gender mm -hmm. and transness and instead going where can we find stories that parallel the experience of being queer or the experience of being trans mm -hmm. we can also find stories where this actor actually has the life experience that parallels this character's journey or the director because we should also be looking at behind the table positions and who's who's leading the telling of the stories i think that's also something to like we can look for when looking to add color into stories um and make them look more like our world is you know where can we find parallels in the human experience between groups of people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a black woman who studies shakespeare i first want to say that i really appreciate you all inviting me onto your platform i think my presence is as a black woman is very rare in this field of my academic field you know, the early modern literature field. And so I, I go to these conferences and there aren't a lot of Black people there. I'm teaching Shakespeare at my college and the students wouldn't expect me. First of all, they always think that I'm a student and I, I don't know how I feel about that yet. I think I should take it as a compliment. But after they realized that I am the professor, that I was taken aback that I am teaching Shakespeare, you know, there's this preconceived notion that oh, you're Black, so why aren't you doing African-American literature? You're trying to put me into this box. I'm so much more than that. And mm -hmm. I've been studying Shakespeare for a long time, even before I started to work on my English degree, you know, just falling in love with Shakespeare on my own and showing, like you were saying, that parallel, this is my identity aligns with these Shakespearean texts, these Renaissance dramas. That is where I find myself in my happy space, it is almost surreal that I'm now in a position to teach Shakespeare in this Black body and to let people know that you can go against the grain. Everything is not going to be aligned with how you look, but sometimes it's more so based on like your character, your personality, who are you as an individual? And I think my presence also does that. It communicates or it shows my students, you know, hey, you can go a little further. You you don't have to restrict yourself just because you are raced as this particular thing. I'm reading Dr. Farrah Karen Cooper's new book, Great White Bard, and she has something in there. And it, it, I think a few other scholars who are involved in the Race Before Race conference talk about if Shakespeare's really for everyone, and if he really wrote for everyone and every body, then he needs to be for every body for us a goal of this podcast has always been to like take him apart as the like great white man hegemonic figure <laughs> that he's become and say no there's actually a lot of room in here for people who don't look like he maybe did mm -hmm. and to find new better meanings mm -hmm. in it instead of mm -hmm. just accepting what we call them the the white man in the top hats with the monocles from the Victorian era decided this was going to be. Mm -hmm. 
I think this is a good transition point for, I have a couple questions about thinking about people who are engaging with this text today. And you've kind of touched on how your presence in the field opens up doors for other people to realize that they too can be interested in this. In your opinion, how should teachers teach these plays when these plays, you know, can be filled with minefields of things like racism, as we've been talking about, things like sexism? How can teachers open those doors for students as you've talked about, you know, your students' jaws are dropping and they're realizing (laughs) the light bulbs are going on about everything that's in Shakespeare? It's not easy. I I would definitely say that we shouldn't shy away from conversations that make us uncomfortable. Teachers should give students the space to bring their authentic selves into the classroom and demonstrate that you can be critical without being disrespectful or offensive. Um, I know in, in my own class, we push the limits and I, I, I definitely challenge my students, you know, I'm going to make you think long and hard about what you just said, or I'm going to make you sit in your thoughts. And I always tell them, you know, if you say something that you didn't mean to say in class on Tuesday, you can come back on Thursday and say, you know what? I didn't mean to say that I had time to think about it and reflect on it. You can come back two or three weeks from now. You always have the space to say, I said something, I misspoke, but now I'm learning that that's not what it is. or I'm gaining different perspectives from my peers. And so I'm starting to see it differently. I think it's important for teachers to know that racism is not a myth. It is real. Mm -hmm. And when we read plays that are overtly racist and contains racist stereotypes, it is an opportunity for us to question where these stereotypes are coming from. Who do they harm and who do they not harm? And how are these stereotypes and this racist language still being perpetuated in society? These questions can encourage us to think about our own privileges and our own viewpoints. And I I try to get my students to take these tools that they're learning, even though we're using Shakespeare as a a means setting our foundation. I want you to go out. I want you to look at this as it pertains to your other classrooms, why you're sending math, why you're sending biology, why you're in the lunchroom, why you're getting your Chick-fil-A. I want you to be mindful of all this stuff and how all this is playing a part into what we just pulled from this text. Othello is consistently referred to as the more Aaron is reduced to his irreligious behaviors and his connection with how he just loves the devil and how are how are we reading these texts and how can we find pity and how can we sympathize with these characters and not only that how can we take what we feel with these characters and apply it to our real world how can I look at my classmate and say you know what we come from different backgrounds but I, I respect what you're saying I understand I, I don't understand fully what you mean, but I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to be more mindful that I still have some learning to do. I think teachers also should consider that as well. We don't know everything. I'm always learning something, especially as I get new groups of students. You know, they're always teaching me something new when we're encountering these plays. I love that. Thank you so much. That like every group of students is different and that what worked for one group is not necessarily going to work for others. I love the acknowledging that it is a learning space mm-hmm. and that everyone is there to learn and people might just learn at different rates and need to come back and reevaluate what they said. And I have another question about theater making. Similarly, 
in your opinion, what should theater makers consider when producing Shakespeare when it comes to race and performance? I think theater makers should be mindful of how far we have come as a society. You know, you don't have to put on the black face. You don't have to put on the black paint to embody the character of Aaron or Othello. You have to realize that your actors and actresses have their own identities and that they are coming with their own lived experiences and allow them to channel this into whatever role they have secured. You know, auditions are just that. They are auditioning for this particular role. And as I said before, you are always performing some type of race. And so allowing the actors and actresses to come into this position and bring what they feel into this role without restricting them and without trying to dictate what's going on is definitely something that I think theater makers should be mindful of. I am no theater expert, <laughs> but I do enjoy going to watch plays, especially um, Atlanta has the Shakespeare Tavern, and I, I love to frequent there. And just seeing the actors and actresses take on the role as a character themselves is almost liberating in a sense because there's a lot of Black actors and actresses that perform at the Shakespeare Tavern. I think that it's encouraging to see them being able to embody Hamlet or <laughs> Ophelia and not just being placed to the role of Aaron or someone in the background. I don't know, one of the henchmen or... <laughs> Torchbearer number three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You kind of touched on this, the like actors bring in their lived experiences and that informs their character. And I think, you know, one thing we've also talked about it earlier in our conversation of, you know, when we put BIPOC bodies on stage alongside white actors, like it's not a costume that you can take off. People walk around the world every day performing race and then they come in to do their jobs where they're also performing race. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. I think sometimes theater makers try to ignore, they're like, well, I cast VIPOC actors and that's good and that's enough. And I think what you've brought up is they are whole people and Mm -hmm. the theater makers also need to be able to, again, advocating for more people behind the scenes, producers and Mm -hmm. directors and designers who are not cis white male are also important behind the scenes because how do you then make somebody feel welcome in in your space when all day they've been performing race and all day they've been othered and now they're in your space to make theater right and I think that's something that like theater makers especially as they try to do work that takes these plays that are kind especially Shakespeare right like put up on this white pedestal as they try to deconstruct that around it like looking internally and making sure that those actors feel supported and welcomed in their space and in their institution as well as like just giving them a job mm-hmm. and trust me uh I can't speak for the whole but I can definitely speak for myself when I tell people I study Shakespeare they're always like why and so being welcome when people are actually interested in actually engaging with the fact that I have something to say about Shakespeare and that I really do have this love that I can share. It's really, it's a really great feeling, you know? Mm-hmm. 
I like those spaces where they welcome me and sometimes they're not always welcoming. But as you said, we're we are performing race and we are performing this idea that people have of us. And so that can be challenging. When I come to the space as a black actress or a black actor and I want to do Shakespeare and you don't allow me into this space, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of disheartening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or two as audience members as well. Like mm-hmm. how can the space be more comfortable for audience members who are non-white mm-hmm. and I think similarly like to reflect that back to academia that would be the classroom how can a classroom be a more welcoming space there are a lot of parallels between theater and academia in terms of the institutional history behind them mm-hmm. the predominantly white institutions that are the big institutions that people try to get into and are seen as authority figures on these subjects and how can we, I say the collective we, as like all Shakespeareans who are interested in like trying to make a better world, work to make those places where people aren't surprised that you're the Shakespeare professor. Right. Or where students come in or audience members come in and they feel not like the theater isn't a place for them. How can we work towards that as well while also doing Shakespeare? <laughs> Yeah. And I was thinking all of this that both of you have been talking about is making me think of Ayanna Thompson. I watched a lecture of hers a year ago or something like that. And she was going to these large Shakespeare institutions that are historically quite white and was like, hey, you're doing Othello. You know, I, I want to advise. And they would say, no, no, no. And they're a bunch of um, white cis men who are directing, who are doing the behind the scenes direction for this particular play. And the actor who was playing Othello put on a smile and did the press junket and said, things are going great. We have this concept. But then in private to her was like, oh, that this is not a very safe place for me. I feel really unsafe here as an actor playing Othello. And it doesn't have to be that way. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so like your presence and the presence of non-white, non-straight, non-cis people is incredibly important. And um, a lot of people think of casting on stage. But really, it's also behind the scenes because actors have their life experience, but everyone else is telling them what to do. So it's also like it's necessary to um, open these institutions and spaces up to people who aren't the uh, person you assume is interested in teaching Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I have to thank those who have laid the who have done the hard work, even though the work continues. but early modern scholars of, of color, like Kim Hall, Ayanna Thompson, Margot Hendricks, who I love. I, I, I consider her my fairy godmother. <laughs> but they've done the work and just them being presence in this space gives me more confidence to continue to do what it is that I want to do. You know, I, I make my TikTok so I can be this Black female presence in this social media space where people can see that hey, non-white people can also do Shakespeare and they can also make it easier to understand and to follow along. And they have something to say, to quote Andre 3000, because I'm in the South. The South has something to say. And (laughs) I feel like I have a lot to say about Shakespeare and I can't turn away from that just because it may not be open or welcoming. I have to keep pressing forward and I think that is how we can make these spaces, whether it's academia or 
in the theater institutions more acceptable to just keep showing up every day, being your true self and not letting anyone take that away from you. You brought up your TikTok, which I love (laughs) and is actually the, I mean, it did the work that you are trying to do. I was aware of your TikTok. I think I had followed you. And then as we were looking to look at Titus Andronicus, I was like, we need a black scholar to come and talk about this with us. We're not the right people to talk about race and Shakespeare. We can make a platform for it. So I do want to talk about TikTok real quick, (laughs) just in a little bit of a lighter question for you. In the caption of your TikTok video titled Aaron to the Romans and Goths, you describe Aaron as one of your favorite complex characters. I know we've talked about Aaron a lot, but what makes Aaron one of your favorite characters in the entire canon? I admire Aaron because he's so unpredictable. He's causing all this this downfall and chaos, and he doesn't care about it. He's the mastermind of the play, and he is a true villain. I think that's what I really like about Aaron. While he is reduced to being just the Empress more, he proves that he is so much more than that. As he, as he navigates to Rome apart from Tamara, he's even choosing his son over her. He's like, you know, tell the mistress, tell the, my em- Empress, I forgot exactly what he says, but he chooses his son over Tamara. He is the epitome of an antagonist and the way he is able to manipulate situations makes him an appealing character like he's good at being bad and that's what I love about him (laughs) in your opinion why continue to perform or study Shakespeare there's a lot more to learn as we revisit these plays not only about language and performance but about ourselves how we comprehend an act or a particular scene is unique to our personal experiences this is why I love teaching Shakespeare, because the moment my students find this connection, it shows me that Shakespeare is still a use, useful teaching method to challenge my students to think a little longer and read a little closer. I think Shakespeare will continue to be relevant as the people who are encountering him are continuing to grow and they're continuing to come in at different numbers and different backgrounds. There, There's a variety of people who are experiencing him. And if I have anything to do with it. I'm going to keep exposing as many people as I can to Shakespeare. (laughs) It's my dream to have the college full of Shakespeareans, not to like take over (laughs) the college or anything, (laughs) but to make the world a better place, you know, from what we've learned from Shakespeare and not make the same mistakes and to use the language that we can be critical, but also be kind. And I think I want a world full of kind people who are also witty like Aaron (laughs) Mm. not evil but definitely witty (laughs) oh yeah Aaron has like the best line in the canon where it's like you've undone my mother I have done your mother like I scream every time I read that part (laughs) people are also shocked when I like share that line with them they're like what (laughs) Shakespeare has a line like that yes (laughs) of course he does I think that's a really good note to end it on. So I'll just say, Mia, thank you so much. This has been such a joy to chat with you about your scholarship and to hear your thoughts and your wealth of knowledge on the topic of the intersection of race and Shakespeare and to continue to talk about how much we just to have a space to talk about how much we all love Aaron um, as a character. Um, So thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Elise and Courtney, for inviting me. This has been a blast. I love talking about Shakespeare and Aaron and Othello, and I can do it time and time again, just ask my students. I often hold them late <laughs> after class. They're like, oh, we're supposed to leave at 3.15. No, I have one more thing to say. <laughs> I have really enjoyed my time and just being able to learn from you all as well. And thank you for sharing your expertise and knowledge with me. Thank you for listening. Our kind listeners, we can no other answer make, but thanks and thanks and ever thanks to our Patreon patrons, Hallie M. Bertling and Megan McGrory. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare, any, and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. Met Bill, Act 5, Scene 5, said by Met Bill. There will have been a time for such a word tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this pretty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty depth. Out, out, reap candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And this is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing.